You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A number of you listening to this might be struggling with a runny nose, a headache, perhaps even a fever. Well, of course, we hope you feel better soon. But you are all Exhibit A in the nature of our relationship with viruses. We are all intimately acquainted with viruses. They're the nasty thing that have us rearranging our schedule at the last minute to care for sick kids that can keep them and us achy and miserable throughout the night. They're small snippets of DNA that slip silently into our bodies to attack our cells after we've made an unwitting encounter with a door handle or the guy in row 23D who just let out a full-mouthed sneeze. Viruses make us sick. They can destroy our crops. In short, viruses are awful and something to avoid. But as you reach for the aspirin bottle or another tissue and you're listening to this, consider viruses have actually gotten a bad rap. Sure, some are nasty, even deadly. But the majority, the vast, vast majority of these miniature bits of biology are harmless, even helpful. In fact, we wouldn't have life without viruses. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, where we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And you'll need a wide-angle lens and a microscope to take in the enormous dimensions of the viral world. We're learning that these diminutive pieces of DNA outnumber bacteria. And we've already been told that bacteria outnumber everything else. Find out how viruses can work with you and for you. But first, there's good reason why bad viruses make the news, because when they're bad, they're very bad. Guinea's president says his country has managed to bring under control the outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus. The virus has so far killed 74 people in the African country. Health ministry officials say there have been 121 confirmed cases of Ebola since January. There is no vaccine or cure for the deadly disease. The virus can be that report from Iran's Press TV as the outbreak of Ebola in the West African countries of Guinea and Liberia was finally coming under control. The three-month outbreak was West Africa's first of the virus, which has no cure. Ebola is a hugely lethal virus. The fatality rate in Guinea was 64 percent. But in Central Africa, such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, where it's known to reside and where the virus was first identified in 1976 as the Zaire strain of Ebola, its fatality rate is as high as 90 percent. Recent tests have shown that the West Africa strain is a new variety of Ebola, and that may count for the outbreak's reduced mortality. But make no mistake, Ebola is still massively lethal, and this mutating virus on the move 
epitomizes all that we fear about these tiny life forms, evolving, merciless, international travelers. So it is with qualified optimism that science writer David Quammen, who traveled throughout Africa to research his book, Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic, wrote in an op-ed piece for the New York Times that we need not fear that Ebola will be the next big pandemic. Although we should not forget the terrible toll that Ebola has taken in Africa and that it is still a virus to watch as our understanding about it races to keep pace with its evolution. It used to be called a hemorrhagic fever virus. And then people started to notice that despite its reputation for being bloody, it in many cases is not particularly bloody. So they're not calling it a hemorrhagic fever anymore. And the technical name for infection with this kind of virus is now simply Ebola virus disease, EVD. EVD. And and what distinguishes this viral family? Well, this family of viruses, the filamentous viruses, comprise uh, five different species of Ebola virus plus Marburg virus. They're all long, stringy viruses. They seem to have an association with bats. We know for sure that Marburg virus resides in bats. That's what they call its reservoir host. And it is also suspected that the Ebola viruses have their reservoir host in bats, although that hasn't been proven. Well, David, you said it's not particularly bloody. Um, but how does it kill? I thought that it created hemorrhaging through the eyes and, and the pores and so forth. Well, a lot of that comes from the rather sensationalistic literature that came out in the 1980s and 1990s about Ebola virus. I'm not going to point any fingers and mention any names of particular books or writers, but it was given this reputation as being this incredibly, gruesomely, preternaturally bloody virus that caused human bodies to bleed out through the eyes, to virtually melt down. And that just was never true. It is a virus that can cause bleeding, and some cases suffer a lot of bleeding, but they don't all bleed to an extreme degree. The virus doesn't dissolve people's innards. One of the symptoms in some cases is bloodshot eyes, but that's very different from bloody tears. The symptoms of Ebola virus infection are fever, headache, body aches, vomiting, diarrhea, rash on the body, and then as it gets worse, people start to suffer something called disseminated intravascular coagulation and organ shutdown. Well, so it doesn't need to be sensationalized. It's horrible enough. And, and Exactly, you, yeah. And you've written in your book and also in a recent op-ed piece for the New York Times that Ebola is more harmful to humans than any other virus on Earth with the exception of rabies or HIV. And why do you say that? Well, what I mean by that, and the way I phrased it, I think, in the op-ed, is that it has a, a higher case fatality rate than any other viruses except those. We know that the case fatality rate for a full-blown case of rabies is nearly 100%. There have been a few people now by way of something called the Milwaukee Protocol who have been rescued from rabies infection. And we know that until uh, the development of really good treatments, uh, drug cocktails, that the case fatality rate of HIV-1 infection by way of full-blown AIDS was running at 100% also. Ebola does not kill 100%, 
of the people it infects, and on average, it doesn't even kill 90%. But the case fatality rates for the different species and strains of Ebola are very, very high, higher than any other virus that I can think of. It is an enigmatic virus. Um, there's much that we don't know about it. We do know that it has a pattern of emerging and retreating and so forth. And in this case, I believe it emerged in West Africa, although it's known to reside in Central Africa. So what is the theory for how it moved from Central Africa to West Africa to infect people? Well, there is no theory yet. That's a question, and it's a very live question at this point. As I said, this is one of the five different species of Ebola, the one that used to be called Ebola Zaire and now is simply called Ebola virus. And it is known previously from Gabon, from the Republic of the Congo, and from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and a few other places in Central Africa. So the question is, what's it doing way over in Guinea and Liberia? And the scientists don't yet know. It seems to have been circulating over there long enough to have diverged a little bit from the Central African Ebola virus, Ebola Zaire. But it still belongs to that species, so, so they don't know. Well, well, I wonder if the question really gets at how viruses travel and the role of an animal host or an animal vector. And and you mentioned that it's thought that um, Ebola resides in bats. And could it be that a bat played a role in any way in the virus emerging or, as as you write, use the term, spilling over into a human population? Yes. Yeah, it could indeed be that. Unknown at this point, but uh, the Ebola viruses and also Marburg, they fall in this group we call zoonotic viruses, meaning that they reside in animals non-disruptively without causing symptoms permanently endemically, and then occasionally they spill over into humans, and and if we're unlucky, they cause really terrible disease in humans, such as the Ebola viruses. So we know it has to live somewhere in the forests of Africa, Central and West Africa, in some other creature. Bats, as I've said, are the suspected reservoir hosts of the Ebola viruses. There is one particular species of bat called the hammerheaded bat, whose distributional range covers both Central Africa and West Africa all the way over to Guinea. So it could be that one of those hammerheaded bats flew over from Central Africa and brought the virus with it and passed it through a colony of bats, and it's been lurking there for some period of time, diverging slightly from the Central African strain so that it's now recognizably different but not very different. And then finally it has spilled over into humans. And and they think that it spilled over into one human and that all of the cases in Guinea and Liberia now are traceable to one spillover into one first human patient. And the nature of that spillover, a, a, a human um, brushes against a bat or a bat bites a human, you don't have to eat the bat, do you? You don't necessarily have to eat the bat, but eating the bat would be one very plausible way that this spillover could have occurred. Fruit bats are considered food in Central Africa and West Africa. It's very possible that somebody went hunting, killed a bat, the bat was infected, the person butchered that bat, ate it, perhaps not adequately cooked, or maybe it was cooked, but in the course of butchering it may have gotten the blood of the bat into a cut on his or her hand. That's one way that this spillover could have occurred. 
Well, David, the spread of Ebola is our collective nightmare scenario. We don't even need the embellishment of science fiction or science slash fiction, as you described earlier, to make it horrific because it already is horrific. But part of the scenario that we may envision is that this becomes, let's say, as contagious as the cold and a horrible disease like Ebola becomes the next big pandemic. You provide a limited bit of optimism on this front by saying that you don't think that this particular virus will become the next human pandemic. And and what is your reasoning? This particular virus is, first of all, it's not transmissible by airborne routes. It is only transmissible from human to human or from animal to human through bodily fluids. It requires that direct contact, for instance, with blood or guts with uh, an open sore on a person's hand or in a person's mouth. So it doesn't fly through the air the way cold viruses and influenza viruses fly through the air. It makes people very sick very quickly, and therefore people tend not to be traveling while they're infected and shedding virus. Also, it's Sadly, it's accurate to say that this is a disease that attacks mostly poor African villagers. It requires some connection with the African forest to get infected from the reservoir host, and then people get very sick very quickly in their villages or in their provincial hospitals. Generally, these are not people who are going to be getting on airplanes and taking international flights while they are infected and shedding virus. I mean, it's a terrible virus. It's a terrible disease. It's a terrible misfortune for a relatively small number of people in Central and and West Africa. And we should be responsive to that, but we should respond to it with sympathy and not with fear for our own health. Well, finally, David, pandemics are possible, and your book, Spillover, is about the next human pandemic. Where do you think the next pandemic will come from, and will it be a virus? Will it be a virus? Yes, most likely. What kind of virus? Well, probably a zoonotic virus, one that spills over from some animal species because that's where new viruses come from. What kind of zoonotic virus? Well, probably a single-stranded RNA virus, meaning the kind that makes a lot of mistakes when it replicates and therefore evolves very quickly, very changeable, very adaptable. So what does that mean? Well, that category that I just described includes the influenza viruses, the coronaviruses, such as SARS, and a few other groups of viruses. So I asked the same question, Molly, when I was uh, researching my book of some very eminent disease experts, what's the next big one likely to look like? And that's what they told me. Well, watch out for the single-stranded RNA viruses. Watch out for the influenzas. Watch out for the coronaviruses such as SARS or MERS now that has emerged in Saudi Arabia. That's what they expect the next big one might look like. David Quammen, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, even about such a disturbing topic. (laughs) Well, I've, I've enjoyed speaking with you, Molly. Thanks for having me on. David Quammen is a science journalist and author of many books, including Spillover, Animal Infections, and the Next Human Pandemic. He's also a contributing writer for National Geographic magazine. His op-ed essay on Ebola appeared in the April 9, 2014 edition of the New York Times. Ebola shows us just how destructive a tiny scrap of DNA can be. Ebola, Marburg, even influenza are the dark sides of virus behavior. 
but most viruses are not our enemy. In fact, we wouldn't have life without viruses. Also, they might allow you to enjoy hamburgers and spinach salad again without worry. A scientist corrals viruses to help wipe out E. coli bacteria. Meet your friendly viral neighbors next. It's Smiley Virus on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We're hearing scary scenarios regarding viruses, but then that's when we do hear about viruses. They make the news when they make us sick. Only that's not the entire story. Most of what we know about viruses are the ones that cause disease because humans seem to be fascinated with disease. I think it's like most of the news is bad news. But in fact, the majority of viruses do not cause disease. Scientists now think that less than 1% of all viruses cause disease. So 99%, 99% are either benign or even helpful. A professor of plant pathology and environmental microbiology at Penn State, Marilyn Rusink, works in its Center for Infectious Disease Dynamics. And she's furthered our understanding of how essential viruses are to living organisms. In particular, her recent work and that of her colleagues that took place in the geothermal soil of Yellowstone National Park. Now, the story of that work sounds like a children's tale. It's the tale of the virus, the fungus, and the plant. First, let's meet the plant. Well, the one we collected there is called panic grass. Its Latin name is Dicanthelium lanuginosum, but you probably don't need to know that. Now, panic grass thrives in hot Yellowstone soil. So, how hot? Bath temperature hot? A little warmer than bath temperature, perhaps. I would say in Fahrenheit, about 120 to 140. And the plant flourishes in that hot soil, but not without some help, as Dr. Rusink's colleagues discovered when they looked at what was growing in the plants. And so they discovered a fungus. It's called curvularia, and it grows inside the plant. It's required for this thermal tolerance. So if you don't have the fungus in the plant, the plant can't survive the high temperature. So the panic grass in Yellowstone survives because a fungus grows in it. Only Dr. Rusink discovered that panic grass survival is actually dependent on a three-way relationship. I asked him to send me their fungal collection, and I was going to look at viruses in it because we were just starting to look at fungal viruses. So they sent me the collection, and when we did the analysis, we found viruses in all the samples that were from the geothermal soils and no virus in samples that were not from geothermal soils. The panic grass that thrives in the geothermal soil does so because it has a fungus and a virus on the fungus. Dr. Rusink and her team grew plants in the lab without the fungus, and they just couldn't tolerate the hot soil. And then they cured the plants of the fungus, and the plants died. But when they killed off only the virus and the fungus, the panic grass died as well. Got that? The fungal hitchhikers had viral hitchhikers. No wonder this grass is so panicked. It's dependent on these buddies to survive. 
And so, Marilyn, you were able to determine that it wasn't just the fungus that was keeping the plant alive, but it was also the virus that was on the fungus that was in the plant. Right. Yep. It's kind of like a bump on a log and a hole in the bottom of the sea, right? Frog on a bump on a log. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the virus in the fungus in the plant. And were you surprised to discover the virus there? You were looking for viruses, so maybe you weren't so surprised, but were you surprised by this three-way symbiotic relationship? Very surprised. So I was not at all surprised to find the virus because fungi are full of viruses, but I was very surprised to find that the virus was actually involved in this heat tolerance. So what we take away from that is that this virus is a helpful virus. It's a good virus, at least for the life of this plant. That's correct. Yep. It's a good virus. And this is a symbiotic relationship, and and I wonder if you could say how a relationship like that evolves and exactly what a symbiotic relationship is. Well, so symbiosis, I'm going to define it correctly here because I think a lot of people misunderstand it. Symbiosis just means an intimate relationship. So all viruses are symbiotic with their hosts, even if they cause disease. But this is a mutualistic symbiosis. That means that everybody benefits. So it's a little different terminology than people might be used to, but that's the actual scientific terminology, and I like to clarify it. So this is a mutualistic relationship. And how that evolves, we think that what happens is that, um, first of all, these geothermal features in Yellowstone, they move all the time. So plants might be growing in normal soil, and then suddenly the soil gets really hot, and they're just going to be dead because they have no way to adapt that quickly. But if they have endophytes, that's fungi, around that can help them. And then viruses, because viruses have an enormous amount of diversity, they can provide new genetic information under extreme environments. So we think that may be a common theme with viruses, that under an extreme environment, a plant or actually any living thing could make use of its viruses for new kind of genetic information, new genes that could help adapt. So that's what the plant gets out of this relationship, but what does the virus achieve? Well, the virus gets a place to live, basically. So the fungus is its home, and the fungus provides everything it needs to replicate. You know, a virus always gets that out of its host. Viruses have a bad rap. So when we talk about viruses, we're either thinking of viruses that make humans sick, or that make plants sick, or that infect our computers. That's Um, right. (laughs) But it sounds like that's not what you think about when you think about viruses. No, it's not what I think about. So I suppose it starts with my fascination with viruses that goes back about 30 years now. But I have always thought that they couldn't be all that bad because they're so cool. And so I was very happy to find the beneficial ones. But when you look carefully, you realize that there's lots of examples of this. Um, There are human viruses that are beneficial. There are um, a number of examples of viruses that protect humans from infection by other viruses. There are examples in mice, which are often used, you know, to study human things. Um, Herpes viruses in mice, for example, protect against the plague. So it sounds as though this is a new way to think about viruses. And bacteria have gotten a PR makeover recently, as we've learned just how many species there are. In fact, they outnumber a I think any other species on on the planet, that they live in us, they live on us, and we couldn't survive without them. So is it the virus's turn for this, you know, this public image makeover? I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to see the public really recognize the value of viruses. And also in terms of the evolution of life, viruses have been absolutely critical. For example, our genome is 
uh, made up of a lot of viruses. There's a lot of viral sequences in our genomes. Up to 50%, and some people think more, of our genome is virus. But what does that mean? So we have... That means that um, throughout our evolutionary history, viruses have been moving into the genome and becoming part of the genome. You know, one way to look at it, this is a little extreme, but I have a colleague who would tell you that humans are just a coalesced viruses. <laughs> We've all, our genomes are just made out of viruses from ancient times that have moved into the genomes. Well, when viruses are in the cell, in the case where they're, they're beneficial, so they're there in the cell of these plants um, or they're there in the cell of this, this fungi, what are they doing? What are they spending their time doing? They're not causing harm. They're not wreaking havoc. What are they doing? Well, you know, essentially they're just kind of little selfish genes. So their interest is just in replicating themselves. And I think the beneficial effects probably start out as an accident and just a happenstance. They, they make something and it happens to benefit the plant under a certain condition. And then when that starts, when that relationship gets established, if it is beneficial, then it gets maintained. And then it will be there for a long time. So we find, for example, in plants, we find some viruses that have been in those plants for thousands of years. They get passed through the seed from the parent plant to the the offspring over thousands of generations, as far as we can tell. Um, this really suggests that they have a mutualistic relationship, that they're benefiting because they've been kept for so long. Doesn't it also suggest that they have to regulate their rate of rep- reproduction? Because That's if you right. if you have a virus inside a cell and it just replicates and replicates and replicates, well, then it swamps the cell and it swamps the, the body or the, the organism. But in this case, they have to find a way to live. Yep. I don't know. It's kind of like a house guest that wants to stay longer than it was supposed to, and it really needs to keep its impact on the whole system minimal. That's true. So there's been a lot of theory about this. Like there's been theory about how viruses evolve virulence, that is the ability to cause disease, and how if they cause too much disease and they kill off their host, then they die too. So there's been a whole theoretical framework about the evolution of virulence and trade-offs between causing disease and maintaining the health of the host. So we think that there's a similar idea that when the virus is beneficial, then it has to sacrifice perhaps some of its own replication for the benefit of the whole system. In the case where a virus does kill off its host, how does the virus benefit from that? It doesn't. We think usually if a virus is lethal, it hasn't been associated with that host for very long. So it hasn't evolved a relationship of balance. So usually when we have disease, then that's probably a virus that hasn't been associated with that host very long. It's jumped into that species recently. So, in fact, a great example in humans is HIV. HIV evolved from a virus in chimpanzees, simian immunodeficiency virus, but in chimpanzees it doesn't really cause any disease. So it's been associated with chimpanzees for a long time. There's a balance. The virus and the host are living happily together, and nobody's particularly damaged by the whole thing. But when it jumped into humans, then that relationship was not established yet, and so the virus caused a lot of disease. The prediction would be that over a long enough period of time, it would no longer really be a serious pathogen in humans either. Well, it sounds as though this new approach to viruses, one, discovering just how diverse they are and how beneficial they are, is really just getting underway. And I'm wondering, do we have any idea what the diversity is like. How would you describe the diversity of viruses in the world? 
It's enormous, much greater than any other life form and more unknown than any other life form. When we go out and look at viruses, nucleotide sequences of the genomes, and most of them don't look like anything anybody's ever seen before. So in our studies, about 65 to 70 percent are completely novel. Studies that have been done in the oceans, viruses in the sea, they get at like 90 percent are completely new. So that just tells us that we don't really know much. So do you think they outnumber bacteria because that's the organism that has had the distinction of late as outnumbering every other life form on the planet? Yeah, they definitely outnumber bacteria in terms of numbers, not in terms of biomass, but in terms of numbers, um, yes. Well, finally, Marilyn, I hear you sniffling a little bit. Yes, I have a rhinovirus, I believe, right now. (laughs) I was going to ask you, do you have a cold virus? I do. It's the first one I've had in a few years, though, so I can't complain too much. Marilyn Rusink, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. This has been really fun. Marilyn Rusink is a professor of plant pathology and environmental microbiology at Penn State. She works in its Center for Infectious Disease Dynamics. Well, got to say, if uh, the cold virus isn't keeping me up at night thinking about how bad it is or just suffering, then thinking about all those viruses that are on me or in me just might. But luckily, the good viruses outnumber the bad viruses, so you don't have to worry. Yeah, I think I'll fall asleep faster. See, viruses are not only our friends, but they can be our allies against disease. And we can enlist viruses to fight the enemy. That's right, we can recruit viruses to our side in the battle against evil bacteria. It's a therapeutic approach called phage therapy. Imagine spaceship-like phages, or viruses, that dock onto the receptor site of a host bacterium cell. They deploy a syringe-like device that penetrates the cell wall. Then they shoot their own DNA into the host cell and turn the evil bacterium into a phage-making factory. I I think this film was on Sci-Fi Channel last month. I mean, is this the one with the lasers, masers, razors, and phasers? But phage therapy, or bacteriophage therapy, has shown real-world promise in fighting a toxic bacterium that has led to the recall of spinach and beef, E. coli. Microbiologist and associate professor of animal science at Purdue University, Paul Ebner, is encouraged by his team's abilities in the lab to combat those E. coli bacteria that are bad. You know, the ones that led to the recall of spinach in 2006 and 2013, phage therapy to the rescue. Okay, so um, just like we have viruses that attack our cells, bacteria have viruses that attack their cells. So they're very specific for um, bacteria and in in many cases for specific types of bacteria. So in general terms, the bacteriophages that we work with, they will seek out a specific host or specific bacterium, dock onto that bacterial cell, inject its own DNA, replicate inside the the bacterial cell using all the bacterial machinery and then cause that cell to explode or lice after they've reached a certain threshold. So then they can go on and infect other cells. So it's basically trying to kind of harness that antibacterial property of these viruses and use them to target specific pathogens. Well, let me just back up a moment because if I recall my Latin correctly, phage just means to eat. Yeah. So, so a bacteriophage is just it's a bacteria eater. It's just a bacterium <laughs> eater, but they're called phages. That's just 
a sort of shorthand, right? Yeah, that's slang. And you can say phage, phages, bacteriophage, bacteriophages. Okay, but it doesn't literally eat the bacterium. That's no, not no, the way it, it works, right? I mean, no. how, how does it work? It, it sounds very mechanical from what I've heard. It is very mechanical, and they are, they're obligate parasites, so they don't exist by themselves. So they have to have their host there. So if you've ever seen them, they look like spaceships. They'll dock onto the bacterial cell, and they literally will inject their own DNA into the cell. So then they don't have the means to replicate by themselves, so they're going to take all the bacterial machinery, and that bacterial machinery is going to replicate their DNA and, and assemble different parts of the bacteriophage, and then will receive a signal, and it will literally the bacterial cell will explode. So when we do it, we count how many phages come out, and it can be anywhere from 40 to 400. My goodness. So, okay. They're sort of like, I don't know, automated syringes or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they inject their DNA into some hapless bacterium, which then is co-opted into becoming a, a factory for making more of these viruses until the thing explodes and distributes them all over the place and starting the process again. That's exactly how it works. Okay. It's like an atomic reaction, really. <laughs> but they're very specific. I mean, they won't just dock on any bacterium in the neighborhood. No, and that's what's good and sometimes problematic with phages because they're so specific that sometimes you need a lot of diagnostic information. You can use a bunch of phages and they might only target a certain type of salmonella. So that, that salmonella might be there, but it might be another type of salmonella. So one of the things we do is try and make, um, we call them cocktails, and it increases the spectrum of the therapy if we put maybe five or ten different types of phages in this little cocktail, and each of them has a different type of target within salmonella or within E. coli. So they're very, very picky, if you will. I mean, they, they know what their targets should be. Yeah, it's, it basically just works on recognizing a receptor. If the receptor's not there, then the virus can't recognize the cell and it can't dock on. Can you actually see this process happening? Are there microscopes that allow you to see this in real time? or is Yeah, it... yeah. Uh, transmission electron microscopy, you can see it. So you can actually see these little guys docking onto a bacterium and, and squirting in your in their DNA and, and then eventually... Well, watch. you can see them docking. And like I said, it does look like a spaceship because if you've ever seen these phages, they have, they have a head. And if you've ever played Dungeons & Dragons or some game like this where you had a 32-sided or a 64-sided die, the heads are very icosahedral and geometric. So then they have this long shaft that comes down and then they have these tail fibers. It really does look like little spaceships. So you can't see them. You need a very, very high-powered microscope. My goodness. So this is a virus killing a bacterium. We consider it, therefore, a friendly virus. Yeah. Although I assume the bacteria don't look at it yeah, that way. Yeah, they would not agree. <laughs> yeah. So, so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Sure. Okay. Now, in your lab, how well did this phage therapy clear away the E. coli? I mean, at what level did it get rid of these guys? So we tested it in a couple different food matrices. We were most successful in ground beef and spinach. And with spinach, when we just kept it at room temperature, the reduction was 99.9%. Uh, we saw similar reductions in ground beef at room temperature. So you're saying only one in a thousand of the E. coli survived the treatment by the phage. That's right. Well, that sounds impressive. It would be a great reduction on my taxes. <laughs> but, in, but in biology, I mean, you know... <laughs> I, even if only one in a thousand survive, uh, maybe that's good enough to still make me sick, or is that not or true? Or replicate again, and that's the great observation question. Our idea is that, you know, this is not a panacea for your food safety. It's 
coupling it with other things that are already in use. So if you can get 99% reduction at, at this stage, and another 99% reduction at this stage, another 99% reduction at the third stage, then you've made really, really big gains. If this is so useful in plants, could you treat somebody who's suffering an E. coli infection with these phages and, and, and cure them? Well, soon after phages were discovered, and I think once they got over their frustration of something killing their bacterial cultures, the people who discovered them immediately said, we have something here, we have it. it's an antibacterial. And um, this was in the early 1900s, and very quickly began using it as a human therapy. So that was mostly in Eastern Europe. So that kind of fell out of favor when widespread antibiotic use became popular. So now it's regained a lot of interest because of, uh, you know, limited resources going into antibiotic development, the emergence of a great deal of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So there's now more focus in using it as veterinary medicine and human medicine. Paul Ebner, thank you so very much for talking with us. Thank you. Paul Ebner is a microbiologist and an associate professor of animal sciences at Purdue University. And by the way, he sent us cool photos of phages docking on those bacterial cells. You can find them on the blog on our Big Picture Science website. Next, know that guy who just sneezed behind you in the theater? (coughs) Well, now you can find out how far that sneeze went. It's the original going viral. But we also have the cultural version, a discussion with the man who coined the term viral culture 20 years ago. Has anything changed? Viral media was really the way that ideas were passing from person to person and mutating and sometimes creating epidemics. It's Smiley Virus on Big Picture Science. everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So most viruses are benign or even friendly, whether they're partnering with an organism to help it thrive or enlisted by humans to fight bad pathogens. But when a virus is a nuisance, well, you have to admit, it is really good at getting around. And one way to get around is to trigger a sneeze in your host. Now, I bet most of us, when we hear a sneeze in the theater, for example, comfort ourselves with the idea that, well, that's okay, that guy is three rows behind me. I'm fine. And before Lydia Bariba recently shot some videos of sneezes with a high-speed camera, the MIT professor held the common belief, at least amongst those who study these things, that an achoo ejected droplets as far as one or two meters. So that's comparable to the distance you can extend your arms. Do you need to wipe off the microphone now? (laughs) I do. And, of course, if you can extend your arms two meters, you're probably an orangutan. But, and you knew there was a but, 
the high-speed video showed something else. Yeah, the droplets go one or two meters, but there's a whole cloud of infectious material that goes along and goes farther. Right. So the high-speed visualizations revealed that what we eject actually is what we would call a multi-phase turbulent cloud, like a water phase, which is in the form of droplets, a gaseous phase, which is in the form of basically a hot and moist air that we exhale, and then eventually these droplets can evaporate into what we would call nuclei or residues that can contain then pathogens and stay suspended. And this whole mixture is ejected at such speeds that it gives the cloud turbulent property. So it's actually turbulent. Well, okay. Now, you said it goes out very fast. What is very fast? <laughs> How fast is very fast? The average velocity of the cloud was about 11 meters per second. And that gives the cloud a certain momentum that allows it to go much further than what we would think in terms of a range of contamination from only droplets alone. And so what we found was that the cloud was actually key in transferring the smallest droplets that are exhaled much further away than otherwise thought. So the reason is that the smallest droplets can stay trapped in this cloud. So if you don't account for the cloud, these smallest droplets would remain quite close to the subject that is sneezing, so about 30 to 40 centimeters. And then with the cloud, the range is extended basically to span the size of a room. So what you're saying, Lydia, is that the part of the sneeze that I can feel and feel disgusted about, all this wet stuff, I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that's not really the, the dangerous part. It's the, the smaller stuff that you don't see and might not feel that goes much farther. That's right. So the key finding is that really the larger droplets actually are the ones that are going to stay the closer because they can't be trapped in the cloud. And if their range is extended by the cloud, it's only by very little, uh, while the small ones are actually extended far enough to be able to reach ventilation systems and span then not only a whole room, but also other rooms in the building. Okay, well, I've got to ask you, and, and I have to warn listeners that this might not sit well with them if they're uh, eating a sandwich as they as they hear this, <laughs> but but tell me, what what's in this cloud and these droplets? I mean, what is it? Obviously, there's a little bit of water, but it's not all water. Right. So what we actually emit in terms of liquid phase is a mixture of mucus and saliva. And so there are different levels of dilution of mucus and salivary fluid, depending on where the ejection is happening in the airway system. So in the upper level, in the mouth, it's mostly saliva. And depending on which part of the mouth you have saliva that is more or less watery. And then if it's coming more from the lower respiratory system, then you will have potentially thicker mucus being emitted. I, I kind of wonder, because I do a lot of uh, travel, that some guy, you know, 10 rows in front of me in an airplane or behind me sneezes. And, uh, you know, so some of that cloud of droplets gets into the ventilation system or gets into the aircraft. That sounds a little dangerous because we're in a confined space. There's no big breeze coming through to clear all that out. That's right. And the issue that this is raising at the moment is really a call to revisit not only the ventilation systems, but also the filtration systems, because we know that usually the air filters are not sufficient to capture the smallest pathogens. And so we really need to start thinking about these effects, especially for confined spaces like airplanes, where really the cloud can stay suspended for quite some time. Well, finally, Lydia, I can understand how uh, we have been 
as it were, prompted to sneeze by viruses that uh, use this technique to reproduce fundamentally by making other people sick. But mm-hmm. does sneezing do any good for us? I mean, if there weren't these pathogens in there uh, eager to get out into the world, would we still sneeze? Is there any benefit to me to sneeze? So this is a great question. Was it optimized for us or for the pathogens? And it's interesting, actually, one of the common reasons for sneezing and coughing is really clearance. So it's for us to clear any kind of pollutant that might be irritating the airway. So that's how it's discussed. But it's also prompted by pathogens. And so the question is, how are pathogens changing the properties of mucus and saliva to prompt us as well for sneezing and potentially maximize their own benefit in terms of transmission is unknown right now. And that's part of the next steps of the work they'll be doing is really trying to see how the pathogens can change the fluid properties of mucus and saliva and how does that affect then the size distribution of the droplets that are being emitted and is that in the benefit of the pathogen. (laughs) Well, Lydia Buriva, thank you so very much for uh, talking with us. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Lydia Bariba is a physical applied mathematician in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at MIT. Okay, well, I'm staying indoors forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Keep me away from those fulminating wet sneeze clouds. But here's the thing. All those properties of a virus that make them a nuisance, that make them so effective in keeping us reaching for the tissues and the aspirin, well, those are the very properties that make man-made viruses so contagious as well. Biological viruses sit in viral cultures in a lab to be studied. Well, we sit in viral culture every day in our offices and on our commute. And back in the 1990s, this guy helped us realize that. My name is Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm the author of the 1994 startling book, Media Virus, Hidden Agendas in Popular Culture. Douglas Rushkoff coined the concept and the term viral media. Like biological viruses, viral media infect us. And they're almost as old as biological viruses. Okay, they're not that old. No, but they are contagious and they do have a life of their own. Now, in this show, we've heard the surprising result that the majority of viruses in the world are are good. But we wonder if it's true that the majority of the digital ones are also so benign. It's a question that Douglas Rushkoff has been asking since the 1990s. What viral media meant to me in the early 90s was that information was no longer traveling from the top down, from broadcast institutions down to people, but it was passing from person to person through really newfangled things like fax machines and CB radios and the fledgling internet. So viral media was really the way that ideas were passing from person to person and mutating and sometimes creating epidemics. Well, has the term changed? Is a virus still an accurate way to describe the movement of information through our society? Information definitely still moves virally. I feel like the big misunderstanding with viruses is people think that the virus is the thing that's responsible for its spread. And the subtitle of this book, Hidden Agendas in Popular Culture, is pointing at what really makes a virus spread. And that's our cultural immune response to code that we don't recognize. Just like a body will only really get sick from a virus if it doesn't recognize it and can't fight it, we as a culture only really respond when the 
code inside the cultural virus or the media virus is touching a nerve that we haven't quite had a good, honest discussion about as a culture. Can you give me a specific example of what you mean there? I mean, the, the fact that it's unrecognized. and yeah. well, Just give me an example. I mean, the first great media virus was the Rodney King tape. You know, and we talk about it as the tape. It was a, a camcorder, happened to be in the right place at the right time, and caught police beating a black man in the street. Right? So the reason why it spread overnight was really less the beating than oh my God, this was caught on a camcorder. And second, what made it live, what made it last so long was the idea that, oh my gosh, here's a guy getting beaten. And the reason why that spread is because we as a culture hadn't really dealt honestly with ideas about police brutality and race relations and what's going on in our cities. So the virus was opportunistic and ended up exploiting that need for a broader discussion about race. I don't know if we should take the analogy this far, but viruses, you know, they attack a cell in my body, for example, they inject it with their DNA. You know, my cell doesn't have anything to say about that. It can't say, yeah, I want that or I don't want that. Is the same thing true with these kind of viruses being spread, for example, by the internet? Do we have to give our assent or are they so clever that they they find our vulnerability, they become a something that influences us willy-nilly? Well, it's not that the virus is so clever. It's that the virus is so lucky, really. You know, (laughs) the virus didn't make itself. So you see a car crash and you go, oh, my God, car crash, car crash. You know, you hear, oh, this person had sex with that. You can't help but say, oh, my God, did you hear the mayor had sex with a donkey or something? You know, it's going to spread. It's a meme that you can't deal with. So you're going to replicate it. You're going to spread it. That's the way that people are still in some ways, refreshingly passive. There are still ways to mine our culture and to create attention for certain kinds of issues. You know, and that's, for me, is the beauty of of viral media. Have we always had cultural viruses? I mean, I'm thinking back 30 years ago before the Internet was what it is today, and people were standing around in airports uh, reading People magazine. Maybe that was some sort of viral spread, too. Or, Or is there something fundamentally different about the digital age? There's something fundamentally old about the digital age. The digital age, if anything, brings us back to the pre-broadcast era in the way information spread, which used to be lateral word-of-mouth spread. So contagion was much more sideways. Then, since broadcast media, it's been very top-down. You know, it's been Murdoch and Hearst and whoever that kind of fills us with the memes that spread. Now we've gone back to what we used to see in the medieval bazaar. People gathered and they talked about whose meat is good today, who makes good shoes, who did the priest have sex with today, what do we think is going on with the king? So the gossip and information and tidbits spread in a much more organismic way, but through very few people, through the few hundred people that showed up at the bazaar that day. Now, thanks to the Internet, that bazaar has millions of people. It's culture-wide. Well, then finally, Doug, you're able to step back and get beyond the OMG reaction to the latest thing on, on YouTube or whatever. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? On the one hand, I mean, we're going to be inundated by trivia, celebrity photos, and so forth. Maybe nothing new there. But on the other hand, the transfer of information is maybe where creativity comes from. So... What do you think? Are we on the road to ruin, or is this 
just uh, one more good thing. It's potentially a good thing, but right now the platforms on which all of our mimetic and viral communication take place, platforms like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, these are platforms that really want us talking about products and silly things like cats. They don't really want us engaged in substantive exchange. And unless we can become more aware of that and really choose to use platforms that allow for a deeper level of cultural exchange, then we're not going to make much progress here at all. Douglas Rushkoff, thanks so much for talking with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Douglas Rushkoff is a media theorist. He's the author of Present Shock, When Everything Happens Now, and 20 years ago, Media Virus, Hidden Agendas in Popular Culture. Douglas Rushkoff coined the term viral media. Well, so we're still learning whether or not the digital media viruses are good, although we have learned that the vast majority of biological viruses in the world are good, or at least benign. Yeah, well, I don't worry about the good ones, actually. But I really like the idea that we're learning enough about these things to be able to co-opt them, to go into our bodies, maybe, and, 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 you know, combat things, not just like the infections that we heard about, but also in the future, you know, maybe cancer, just deliver some cancer drugs right at the right place with a virus. So there's a lot more to learn about viruses, although that's all we're going to learn in this show about viruses, thanks to our virally vital production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Molly Sharlack. Also support from Google and Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Smiley Virus from Big Picture Science, and there's more episodes of BiPiSci on iTunes and through the link on our website. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because, after all, you'll have no trouble with computer viruses, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Help our show to go viral. Oh, and we'd love to hear from you as well. You can write us with your comments and your criticisms and your suggestions for the show. Big Picture Science at SETI.org. That's Big Picture Science at SETI.org. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.